0: This is Gary Kavanagh for TRSI. I'm here today with Professor Theo Bohr, Professor of Healthcare Ethics at Groningen Theological University. Professor Bohr is an expert on the area of euthanasia and assisted suicide. From 2005 to 2014, he served on one of the Netherlands five regional review committees on euthanasia. Those boards reviewed cases of euthanasia and physician assisted suicide to ensure they were carried out in line with legal requirements. Once a supporter of Dutch euthanasia laws, now a stance critic, Professor Boer, it is a pleasure to have you with us today. Good to see you. So before we go into into, um, your own view on the Dutch law, could you give us a general rundown of of what the actual status of the law is currently in your country? Uh, What criteria you need to meet, the kind of numbers we're seeing, just the general outline of it.
1: Yeah, well, we have a long history of debating assisted suicide and euthanasia since about uh, Uh, 1969, so we have a a, a more than 50-year period. We started tolerating it in the 1980s, uh, officially, so that is early too. Our first legal um, uh, arrangement was in 1994 and the law we now have is dating back to 2002. The criteria are really very basic and that is that there should be the, uh, the request of a competent patient there should be uh, unbearable suffering. Um, the suffering should also be without hope of, uh, of uh, improvement. Uh, and the doctor should have um, informed the patient about the possible alternatives. And then last but not least, the uh, euthanasia should take place in a medically sound manner so that the patient does not suffer. Uh, important is that unlike in some other countries, um, we ha- we have both possibilities. We have euthanasia and assisted suicide. In euthanasia of course the doctor does the act him or herself and in in assisted suicide it is the patient who drinks the poison. Uh, Interestingly it is 97% of the patients and doctors who decide that it will be euthanasia and not the patient drinking the, uh, the, the poison. Um, that, has a, that tells something about the degree in which the doctor is involved in the whole process. As for the numbers uh, that you asked me, uh, we started out basically in the 1990s and the beginning of this century uh, by about 2,000 cases a year. And that remained level for a couple of years until then, right in the middle of about 2005, 6 the number started going up, and we are close to 7,000 uh, cases per year now, um, and that is an important increase. If you reckon that the overall mortality has has remained uh, rather level during that period, so at the moment we have about 4.5 percent of all deaths are preceded by uh, by euthanasia or assisted suicide. And is there a sort of average
0: person who's likely to avail of this? I mean, is there a particular demographic? I imagine age plays a, a particular role, but are, are there other demographics like those with mental health
1: issues or is it concentrated primarily on age? Um, it is primarily concentrating on the pathologies, the the, the illness uh, of the patient, and that in, in still in most cases it is a terminal disease, although that terminal diseases was in the beginning, it accounted for about, I would say, about 92% of all deaths uh, through euthanasia. And that that number has gone down, Um, not only cancer, but increasingly also uh, neurological uh, conditions, um, terminal heart failure. But then very interesting, of course, too, is people who are not, Uh, expecting a soon natural death. Um, I think in the beginning it was really the context of acceptance of the euthanasia law was for people who were dying anyway and that euthanasia was kind of the last resort to prevent a terrible uh, dying process. Whereas now for uh, a considerable number of people, and still not the majority, but I would guess about 10%, uh, euthanasia is a way to prevent a terrible life. So these people have a certain amount of of natural time span. Uh, It can be between two years and and 20 or 30 or 40 years, especially in psychiatry. We have uh, uh, psychiatry cases about, I think, about 80 a year. That has remained level now for a couple of years. We have dementia, of course. People have a life expectancy of maybe between three and seven years, whereas uh, about 200 a year with a tendency to go up too, and there's all kinds of very sp- specific conditions such as people with autism or people with blindness it's it's just a couple of people a year maybe 10 20 that have these special conditions that you probably would say were handicaps and not an illness uh, but that number is going up and also interesting is that we have an increasing number of what we call uh, euthanasia for two where it's Two people, of which one normally is 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 um, terminally ill, and the other is not, uh, but is is for example chronically ill, and where the people decide that they will have euthanasia together. That that number is about, uh, I think, about thirty five people a year. So some of the conditions that you you mentioned there.
0: When you were talking about the law and you were talking about the need to show that the suffering was unlikely to be alleviated, some of those conditions that you met would seem quite difficult to show that to be the case. Has there been any debate about this or is this simply a low-level trend that's been sort of developing and hasn't really been debated yet?
1: Well, that's a good question because, you know, the the criterion that the suffering should be unbearable, uh, I think in effect is... First, first, it is a very subjective criterion, because um, whether or not I experience my suffering as unbearable uh, very much depends on my biography and my values and my, my worldview and my past. Um, and now the point is that a patient, so to say, has to, uh, uh, to make sure that their doctor accepts that suffering as unbearable. So what, what you get is that in some cases, patients and doctor, doctors are getting involved in, in some kind of a play where the patient tries to con- convince the, 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 the doctor and sometimes they succeed and sometimes they don't. Um, but, you know, it's a very subjective criterion and I think it's very hard and it is maybe even inhuman for a doctor if a patient says, Doctor, please, this is for me unbearable, uh, what kind of a doctor are you if you say, Oh no, your suffering is not unbearable? I don't think it is unbearable. So it puts, so to speak, doctors in a very, um, a, a very poor, dire situation that they have to com- contest the seriousness of the suffering. So, which in end effect means that if a patient insists and insists and insists, Uh, then the doctor will have little um, other options than saying, "Okay, if this is what you want, then I assume that this is unbearable.
0: So looking at the actual provision of these services, um, is it the case that this is a service just offered at a general level across the country or are there specialized clinics or practitioners uh, who focus primarily on this?
1: Well, interesting that you you um, you use the term offered, because uh, we, we still assume that in the Netherlands, euthanasia should not be offered, but should be requested, and the initiative on the part of the patient. Um, now, I know of cases, and I don't know whether it's in 2% or 12% or 22% of the cases. It's very hard to do any serious research on this, where the doctor is the one who says, well, given your condition, uh, would euthanasia be one of the options that you would like to consider? So, but, but talking about offering euthanasia is a very sensitive subject. It should come from the patient. Now, as for your question about euthanasia clinics, there is actually one um, organization that is previously known as the end of life clinic and now known as the euthanasia expertise center um, it is not a clinic. They have, I think, they have a house, uh, a building with with one bed. But um, this really, in, in in reality, is a team is teams of uh, traveling doctors who, um, in a central place in The Hague, the capital, uh, they get the euthanasia requests, and then a team of normally a doctor and uh, and a nurse visit the patients on site at their homes. And then once or twice or three times, and then the second doctor gives their opinion and then the euthanasia will be performed in the patient's home. So there's not a specific clinic where you go to and where you you enter in a living condition and you are buried out in the carried out dead, nothing of that kind. So you previously, if I don't misunderstand your
0: position, had been a strong supporter of these laws and obviously you've changed your position now, but why? what were the reasons behind your initial support for these? Had there been particular personal circumstances or arguments you'd heard that you found persuasive?
1: Well, you know, there's one thing that I should add, and that is that I know, never, unlike some people who would like me to be that, I have never been a strong supporter of the law. What I have what always said, even when I was invited to be part of of the euthanasia review committee that that uh, that assesses each euthanasia case in hindsight when i entered that committee i i did say to the uh, to the chairperson that i was critical about euthanasia but then as a democrat um i think that it is a good thing that euthanasia if once it is allowed that we do have a transparent system of of uh, Control. So, uh, and of course, I can imagine. I am not a principal uh, op- opponent to euthanasia. My position has always been and still is: euthana- euthanasia could be okay, but it, just like violence in war, uh, it should be an exception. It should be a last resort. Now, what what made me change my mind is that um, uh, I have actually witnessed that euthanasia. Increasingly, has become from a last resort, uh, kind of a, a default option, and and uh, there is research that we have done that really affirms this outcome. Uh, this this factor. This this year, we published an article in the British Medical Journal. Uh, where we saw that there's what we call practice variation in euthanasia, which means that in some regions in the Netherlands there's hardly any euthanasia, whereas there's districts in some cities, especially in the western part of the country where euthanasia accounts for one in six or one in five deaths so and and that being the fact, uh, I can no longer believe that if twenty percent of the people die through euthanasia in a certain uh, urban district I can no longer believe that that is the last resort that that is the the only option uh, clearly something um, is the case in the Netherlands and that is that euthanasia that the euthanasia law has become to function as to a kind of an offer as the kind of a I think uh, the supply has created demand now someone may say and some people ask me has has it's is it spinning out of control I think it's not because this is what people want but I think that once you legalize assisted dying the fact that you have legalized it will do something to the way you can consider living and dying mm-hmm. you see and and that is what people accept and uh um, but I, what, what I tend to say to Ireland, for example, or Great Britain, that is, once you legalize assisted dying in any form, and I would say that if you do it, I do prefer assisted suicide rather than euthanasia. But if you legalize it, um, be prepared that that you will be ending up like uh, the situation in the Netherlands in 20 years from now. Sure.
0: It sounds, and not to put words into your your mouth, you're saying that your primary issue was the normalization of the process that seems to have have taken place after Mm -hmm. the law was passed. Looking at that issue of normalization, of it becoming just a standard um, part of the equation, do you have any idea as to
1: why that has been the case or or why you think that's happening? Um, That's a good question. Really, uh, and I think I have a hard time answering it. The the point is that um, euthanasia by pro-choice organizations, uh, we have the biggest uh, uh, euthanasia association in the world, uh, both in absolute numbers and in relative numbers. And, you know, the point is that they continue um, day after day to, to portray euthanasia as the most dignified death. Uh, and the other thing is, and that you can see that in campaigns in Great Britain and Ireland, they, um, they continue to portray a natural death as a potentially atrocious, terrible death. Now, um, that does happen occasionally. But uh, that story was much more true in the 1980s than it is now. Uh, the palliative care has become so much better especially given the fact that we also have some palliative sedation, that um, the prospect of a terrible natural death is n- not, not nearly as realistic as it was in the 1970s and 80s.
0: When you were saying about, uh, when I had said offering uh, these services, and you were making the point that the patient must request it and it's a sensitive issue, what is the general tone of media and government towards euthanasia? and I, I ask this question just with an eye to, Is this something that is presented to the public as an acceptable um, just an acceptable option, and is that influencing people to bring it up themselves? But what I'm really asking here is we're talking about people having this choice. But are is this the only choice really talked about in popular dialogue, or are alternatives like palliative care or whatever may be required uh, also a big part of the picture? What what is the, the cultural narrative like?
1: Well, the government itself is uh, is generally very very low low profile about euthanasia. They will. Uh, seldom say something positive or negative about it. What they will do is they will refer to the existence of euthanasia review committees that that review every case uh, in hindsight. Uh, so there's not much discussion. Well, but then on the other hand, in in the media, uh, the, the the default paradigm, the default narrative of euthanasia is as it is in many countries, it is one in terms of dignity, it is in terms of bravery, uh, it's in terms of compassion, it's in terms of, of self-autonomy. Uh, um, that is the, really the main paradigm. Uh, and in, in the book that, that I uh, issued, as I have it here on my desk, it is Living with Euthanasia. Uh, we we published it uh, uh, just a week ago and there we collected uh 43 stories of people who had experiences with people who had euthanasia and there the interesting thing is that apart from uh, a number of hallelujah stories about euthanasia uh, there's also a number of people who are who are ambiguous and even some people who are uh, outwardly bitter about their loved one having euthanasia so the Uh, What we do and try to do in in my profession as an ethicist is at least to keep the debates going. Uh, Because what you will see is that once euthanasia is legalized, and especially in the Netherlands, where we are kind of a a laboratory uh, with much international focus on this. So the, the, the standard option here is don't criticize what is going on in the Netherlands um, please emphasize that everything is going as it should. Uh, and that is paralyzing. But Because I, I do not contest the law at this moment anymore, but what I think is absolutely needed is that uh, there should be an ethical debate about, as you say, about the alternatives. Because dying a natural death can be a really wonderful and a really um, enriching experience. And I... We have many stories of those, but they don't make it into the media.
0: So I know, uh, at least in Ireland, when we're looking at proponents of, of these topics or, well, or proponents of the legalization of these of these topics, there's generally two arguments made. The firstly is the bodily autonomy issue, that this is a person's choice and you don't have the, uh, the right to stop them. That would seem to refer more, of course, to assisted suicide than euthanasia, mm-hmm. which obviously involves others. And the second is, is a compassion-based argument that this is you know, an inhumane thing to refuse someone. The, the example in Ireland that's often come up is you know, if there was a dog in pain like that, you wouldn't, you wouldn't force it to live. You know, how do you, you square the circle here? How do you come up with a policy that deals with those issues and accepts that some people are in legitimate and significant suffering that is unlikely to be alleviated? Without risking contagion to the wider society. I mean, is it a case that there is, there is a workable solution here that works for everyone? Or is it simply a case that some people are going to suffer regardless of the option here?
1: Oh, that's, a, that's a very good question. I think compassion is very important, and we should concede, we should affirm that there can be suffering that is heartbreaking. But and as in any ethical problem, we should keep in mind what are the different alternatives to alleviate, this, alleviate this suffering and 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 yes if assisted dying would be the only solution to prevent heartbreaking suffering but the only not not euthanasia as a as a fashionable death but euthanasia as the only way to prevent a, a, a terrible death then i would suggest that could be a good thing but, um, you know, I think we need to focus more on the positive sides of the uh, enormous advances that have been made in palliative care. Really, they are groundbreaking. There has never been in history a time in which euthanasia was so not necessary as in 2021. So, but then still um, about the the autonomy paradigm, the, the uh, should I not have the right to to decide about my own life. Well, as a Christian, I don't think so. But as a citizen, I think, yes, you may. I will not, I, I should not force anyone to go on living. Um, that, that, that would testify disrespect. But then I think if we spell autonomy autonomy with a capital A, then we should insist that it is not the doctor who kills, but it should be the patient who takes the initiative and, that, and, and preferably that the patient should do the act themselves. So um, suicide has occurred in all ages and for some good and heartbreaking reasons. But let us not romanticize that situation and let us, let us not uh, regulate it too much. Because when we regulate it, it, um, it entails a suggestion that this is what all of us together think is the best way to die. And I think we should avoid that impression at all costs. So when discussing this
0: topic, it's natural to focus primarily on the, parent, the patient, the person being impacted. When Earlier when you were talking about euthanasia and the, the input of doctors, how do doctors feel about this? It seems like something that, could be argued to quite fundamentally change their relationship with their patients. And obviously there will be arguments there that what you were doing is in their best interest. But I'm just curious, has there been any studies done into uh, medical professionals in your country? And, and has this had any impact on them professionally, psychologically, or just culturally?
1: Yes, yeah, so it's, it's there has been done some research uh, on, on how physicians experience uh, providing euthanasia. I think there are three groups, mainly. One is a group that says, I, I will never do euthanasia. The, the alternatives are so convincingly uh, uh, available that, um, uh, or I don't do it because of my, my world view, my ethics, or my professional view. That's one group, and I think there's about one in five And this number has gone up slightly in the past year. So there's a number of of doctors who say that I will no longer do euthanasia. I I know several people in my my, uh, colleagues' uh, circle that have made this decision. Then there's, on the totally other side, there's the group that are, for example, connected to the Euthanasia Expertise Centre. And they provide euthanasia between 10 and 50 times a year. For them, it is a matter of, of helping patients, the more the better, not, not that they are fond of killing, of course, but that just like a, a doctor, a gynecologist may be proud of delivering many babies, Some doctors may be relieved that they have helped many people to have a a dignified death. Um, And then there's the biggest group in between who say that they can imagine um, making this exception, but they they dislike it. They think it's emotionally stressful. They want to avoid it as much as possible. uh, And they are happy if this uh, cop passes them by. So
0: looking beyond your country, are there any countries that you think is has implemented a better way of doing this or is is heading towards that kind of implementation uh, anywhere a country could look to you know for example as to you know, the quote unquote right way to do this
1: yes that that's a good question it's a con- question of conscience i think um I think I would opt for the system in oregon um not that that functions so well in every respect but uh, you know, if as as I said, if you spell autonomy with a capital A, autonomy is is very important in Oregon, and they have a very a, a very simple law actually, and it says that you should be in uh, close to a natural death, and I think that is a sine qua non, that's an absolute condition. Do not offer euthanasia to people. Who have, uh, who have no death expecting them in the near future. That's the one. And the, the other thing is then that the patients should do it themselves. Uh, and in the Netherlands, we made this switch towards having euthanasia very early from actually 1969 on, where this is massive involvement of the doctor. I think that is detrimental to the, uh, to the physician's work And it's detrimental to a a patient-doctor relationship because it puts the patient, it puts the the physician on a pedestal. It puts the physician in a in a position that formerly was only for the priests, namely as the one who decides about who lives and who who, who dies. So yes, I would say Oregon, uh, but the best is probably to to keep uh, to keep tragedy, tragedy. Uh, and to respect the choices of people who want to end their lives them, themselves, I think actually I don't want to to, to make any um, suggestions here. But I think for those people who are intelligent and who have internet, and uh, they will find the ways um, to to end their lives in a humane way. Uh, don't ask too much involvement of a society, let alone of a healthcare system. Just to close on, Professor.
0: we We've talked about where things are currently uh, in your country.
1: Where do you think they're going to go in the future? What do you think the, the trends are that we're going to see? Well, what we saw in our in our research about the numbers is that the low incidence regions where euthanasia is relatively seldom, uh, there the numbers are going up. Uh, so we, we, I still see a, a large growth potential. Uh, then there's another possible growth potential, and that is euthanasia and people who have, uh, who are not competent or are no longer com- competent. We have now had a recent court case where uh, a physician was acquitted who killed a patient who was no longer competent, but she had written an advanced directive some years ago. And they killed her on the basis of this advance directive. Whereas at that moment itself, this woman was not able to confirm her wish. Actually, she uh, she she seemed to not be okay with it. And then the physician said, "We have to respect her advance directive more than re- respect her present um, uh, will." The Supreme Court has um, has acquitted the physician from all. Uh, charges which means that in the future we will see more euthanasia cases of dementia patients who are no longer competent. Now I don't have a, a, a glass ball to watch, to watch but I think that in the end we will see um, in a couple of years we'll see where uh, situations where people will say why is it that Mrs. Johnson who is dementia who has dementia and who has an advanced directive why will she receive this dignified death Whereas her neighbor, Mrs. Smith, did, did not have this uh, advance directive, but she is suffering even all the more. Why should we let Mrs. Smith, um, why should we punish her for not making an advance directive, whereas Mrs. Jones can have this, this ideal or this dignified death? I think there will be court cases like this, but maybe it'll take 10 or 15 years, but I can see it at the horizon.
0: So you would be, that nearly sounds like a sort of uh, lives not worth living distinction being put onto people who've never made that classification themselves by the state.
1: Well, life not living is, is is of course, that is reminiscent of, of Nazi uh, vocabulary, which I do resent. So I, I reject that. But yes, we have, for example, this this. There's a law proposal now in the Netherlands, and it is under uh, uh, scrutiny now, but uh, there's some reasonable chance that it will be accepted, and that will provide euthanasia to anyone over 74 who wants to have euthanasia, regardless of their medical condition. The thought behind this is clearly that if you're my age, I'm 61, if if you're my age, you have to call 133, which is the suicide Uh, telephone line in the Netherlands and people try to keep me from committing suicide. Whereas when I have reached the the age of 75, from 75 on, society would all of a sudden say, well, in your case, we think it can be rational to kill yourself. And I think that is, yes, that is an, an underlying evaluation in this completed life act, as it is called, namely elderly people It's no problem if they want to be killed. Uh, We will um, only be (coughs) suspicious when it's younger people. Professor Theo Bohr, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you.